In five years, this is the first time that I couldn't fix my notes by the time the bumper was over. <laughs> five years, I, that was a long streak I had. So disappointed. Good morning, I want to tell you all a story. And this is a story I want to tell you. I want to tell you a story about a woman who, uh, her name is Lisa Sharon Harper. Does anybody know Lisa Sharon Harper here? She's been in our church before. She, uh, she's an acquaintance. Uh, she's, she's, a, she's an activist. Um, and she tells a story about three and a half years ago when she went to Ferguson, Missouri. And she went to Ferguson, Missouri after uh, a young man named Michael Brown was shot and killed by a police officer. That's when she went. And the reason she went is because uh, she was there and she saw that, that, uh, that there were uh, massive rallies and protests. And these massive rallies and protests were in response uh, to the death of Michael Brown. They were in response to the fact uh, that a police officer who shot Michael Brown wrote on his report uh, some, some incredible indiscrepancies um, that, that conflicted with the accounts of eyewitnesses. And she went there because there, there were rallies based on the fact that Michael Brown's body laid there for four hours before anybody did anything uh, uh, to give dignity to that body. And she went there uh, because when the federal government came in and investigated the Ferguson Police Department, what they found was that there was gross misconduct and gross acts of racism that took place within the police department, and yet nothing was done to reprimand or to punish, period. And she went because there was this city, this city filled with churches and pastors and leaders and other activists, and for some reason, these uh, pastors and churches and activists and organizations, for some reason, they could not get together and work with, with those who were protesting, with those who were rallying. And the rally turned, turned violent, where 90 people were assaulted, police officers were assaulted, uh, um, people rallying were assaulted, reporters were assaulted. And so Lisa Sharon Harper went because she was like, we need a liaison. We need somebody who can support those who are protesting these indignities. We need, we need people who can support um, uh, the people who are protesting the fact that a body was laying there given no dignity. We need people who can support these things. And so she went and she gathered up all the church leaders and she gathered up um, uh, all the organization leaders and she went with them and with another pastor named Leroy Barber. And they all get together and they walk into a room and, uh, and Dr. Leroy Barber gets up to speak. And she's there, and he speaks, and he preaches this verse, this Isaiah verse that my daughter just read a little while ago. He preaches, he preaches that verse. It's, it's actually the first verse, that, uh, um, the first passage that Jesus ever preached, too, in Jesus' ministry. So he preaches it, and I want to highlight a couple things. It says, there will, They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. And so Reverend Barber stops right there, and he talks to the whole crowd. And he says to everybody, do you know what this passage is saying? He's saying, this passage... Is saying that those who are oppressed, those who have been marginalized, and in this case specifically, those who have been enslaved, they're going to lead restoration and renewal. Those who are oppressed and marginalized are the ones that are going to bring peace. And he says to this crowd, and it's a really diverse crowd, different backgrounds, different people, and he says to this diverse crowd, he says, do you believe that the black people who are rallying in Ferguson, Missouri, can lead us to restoration and renewal and peace. The room was silent. It was quiet. Finally, this guy speaks up, and this guy says, Dr. Barber, I think many of us in this room have been taught 
that we can't be led by the oppressed and the marginalized, that we can only be led by people in power. And I think we have to fix that first. Lisa Sharon Harper says the air goes out of the room because there's this deep, ingrained sense in which for hundreds of years there's been a story told in America that only people of power can lead and bring restoration and renewal. We're doing a series right now, and this series is on racism and privilege, and it's been a really incredible series. I, I feel like we're, we're, we're scratching the surface on doing good work, but I'm encouraged by what comes next, right? And so we're, we're in the midst of this series, and we've talked a lot about what it means uh, to be a church that enacts restoration and renewal, especially when it comes to racism and privilege. And we've talked a lot about anti-racism. We've talked a lot about our own implicit biases. We've talked a lot about our blind spots. And today, in order for us to move forward in the way that we're called to end racism, to, to identify privilege, to be led by the marginalized and oppressed, we actually are going to have to look backward. And we're going to have to rewrite history in some ways, and it's going to be a little bit painful today. And as a white man who stands up here as a privileged person, as I tell these stories, I recognize completely that I tell the stories from the side of the privileged, from the side of the powerful. And so as I preach and as we get together and as we converse in our small groups and do these things, as always, like I say, um, tell me when I'm an idiot. <laughs> Don't go back to a small group and be like, Jonathan's an idiot. Just come up to me and be like, Jonathan, you're an idiot. You just do that. That works for me. Because I do have blind spots. And so in order for us to move forward, we've got to go backward. And I want to go backward to 1591. I want to talk about Pope Alexander VI in 1591, who goes to the countries of Spain and Portugal and says to those countries, you are allowed to have the Americas, which was basically at that time the Mississippi River West down through Mexico and Central America. He says, you are allowed to have that so long as you convert everybody to Christianity when you get there. And so uh, the Spanish and the Portuguese, they, they sail over. And, uh, and historians will tell us there's about 100 million people living in that area at the time. And they're not just hunter-gatherers. They have sophisticated cities that are actually better technologically than many of the cities in Europe at the time. And they are incredible, incredible nations. And the Spanish and the Portuguese, along with other Western Europeans, come in and they begin to systemically slaughter these hundreds of millions of people to the point where historians will say that 80 to 90% of that population was killed, slaughtered, in the name of Christianity. In fact, Juan Conquistador says this specifically. He says, we became tired of the, when we became tired of the killing, God saw fit to give the savages smallpox. Because when the powerful are in charge, the name of God, God is on our side. And because God is on our side, God wills the acts in which we're complicit in. And then that, that frame of mind continues. The frame of mind continues. Uh, ben, ben Franklin, who's on our $100 bill, uh, argues before the British Parliament. And he says, there's not enough white Anglo-Saxon Protestants in the New Americas. What I say that we should do is we need to close off America to everybody except white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. He loses that battle, but it's written in the British Parliament history. And then Thomas Jefferson gets up in 1776 and he says all men are created equal until we get to paragraph 23 of the Declaration of Independence. Anybody ever get down 23 paragraphs in that? <laughs> Me neither, up until like two weeks ago. And he says, the last of these complaints is one that reads, King George has excited domestic insurrections among us and has endeavored to bring on the inhabitants of our frontiers, the merciless Indian savages whose known rule of warfare is undistinguished destruction of all ages, sexes, and conditions. And so our very own leaders, the ones that we create statues for, are ones that 
set up a, a um, they set up an, an idea, and this idea is that there are some who are in power, and those people who are in power are ordained by God, and there are others who are subhuman, who we consider savages, and our country is based on this rationale. And so in 1790, the first census for the United States of America, in 1790, there were, there were three categories on the census. It was you are a white man, a white woman, or you are chattel. Now, what is chattel? Chattel means property. It means any kind of property that brings to you a profit. And so chattel at the time would be considered horses, plows, pitchforks, and human beings. That was chattel. Any human being that was not white. And then they set up this thing called the Naturalization Act, which says only white men can vote. And so when you're starting a country from the ground up and you decide that only white men can vote, basically what you're doing is you're saying this is going to be the dominant culture forever and ever. These are going to be the powerful. These are going to be the ones that lead us anywhere. And the voice of anybody else is completely and utterly inconsequential. That is the way America's set up. And so this Naturalization Act says you can only vote if you're white. So what happens? Every immigrant that comes over from every nation starts to apply to be white. So we're forsaking culture, we're forsaking heritage, we're forsaking ancestry, and we're saying, I just want to be white so I can vote and get on board with what's going on in this country. This lasts up until 1922, less than 100 years ago, when a man named Takao Azawa, a Japanese man, sued the United States government for the right to be white so that he could vote. And the United States government came back and said, no, you don't look white. And in fact, we don't even recognize the fact that you're Japanese because you have East Asian physical attributes. We're going to call you Chinese. And everybody else with East Asian physical attributes, we're going to call Chinese as well. Not only did he get denied that right, he got denied his own culture, his own heritage. That was 1922. We're talking less than 100 years ago. I haven't even brought up the three-fifths act, which I know I'm simplifying things, but basically says anybody who is not white is basically three-fifths of a human being, and that lasted for quite a while. I haven't talked about Jim Crow laws, which, which, which kept people oppressed and made sure that slavery continued to exist after slavery supposedly did not exist. I haven't mentioned the fact that during World War II, some of us have, have family members alive who were alive during World War II, we, we imprisoned Japanese people solely on the fact that they were Japanese and may be a threat to us, and it scares me to death the way we talk about Muslims in this country right now because it looks like history is trying to repeat itself. The Reverend Barber asks, do we believe, do we believe that the oppressed and the marginalized can lead us to unity and freedom? And this is what we contend with. We contend with a system for hundreds of years that's been set up to make sure the privileged stay on top, the marginalized stay on the bottom. Now, some of you might be saying, you know, this, this is all in the past, right? We're, we don't have those laws any longer. They're not there. What's going on, right? Well, I think... I think um, I think what happens is we have implicit biases based on this. How many people in Scripture, have you opened up your Bible and you've read about the sins of the fathers and sins of fathers' fathers? Raise your hand if you've just read anything in Scripture. It's mentioned numerous times. I tried to pick a passage and there was like a bunch and I was like, I forget it. <laughs> this is the sins of our fathers, my fathers. The sins of my fathers' fathers. 
where we are reaping those sins right now. So we have these implicit biases. We have these blind spots. We have these subconscious ways in which we defer to power just with triggering words. The uh, university, uh, Ohio State University did a study, and there was a bunch of studies you can look online, but they did a study, and these studies all say the same thing, that three of every four human beings, not, every, not three, or four, three out of every four white people, three out of every four human beings have implicit bias. Implicit bias towards people of color. Three out of every four. And we do. And so this is like my time of confession. What do you think when you hear about a man who has five children from three different women? Anybody think about the president? Yeah, I guess it's been in the news. Welfare queen. The vast majority of welfare recipients are white. When we say welfare, when I say welfare cream, what do I think? What do we think? In the 80s, there was a war on drugs. How many people took part in the war on drugs through dare or just say no? Evidently not, yeah, not, not too many of you. <laughs> And what happened? Well, there was crack addiction. Crack was the big epidemic. And because uh, crack largely affected African Americans, what did we do? We had a war on drugs. And what we did is we said, oh, these people are dangerous. They're addicted. We're going to throw them in prison. And prison populations increased exponentially. And, and we said, good, it's a war. And we got to get these addicts out of here. And then now we have another thing. It's called the opioid crisis. And the opioid crisis happens by and large to people who are white. And so what do we say? Do we say it's a war on drugs? No, we have governors on commercials saying, if you are addicted to opioids, you can get help. And then we put phone numbers and websites where you can find help for your addiction because we have implicit biases based on the sins of my fathers and my father's fathers. And our implicit bias keeps us from believing the words of Isaiah the oppressed and the marginalized can bring us to a place of restoration and renewal. It's painful. It's hard. How's the church been involved? Well, the church, according to uh, uh, Christian, uh, man, Michael Emerson and Christian Smith, I always struggle with their names. They wrote a book called Divided by Faith, and they said, well, how was the church in this process? Was the church complicit in this uh, structure of creating a power, a power group and an oppressed group? And the church was absolutely complicit. In fact, right up until the Civil War, most of the church, the majority of the church, believed that people of color were subhuman and did not have souls. But if you killed them, you baptized them first before you killed them, just in case. This is really what happened. We used uh, scripture like this one in Colossians that says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. We use scripture like this to justify the fact that we have a power group and an oppressed group. And just as a side note, let's stop taking scripture literally because when we take it literally, we see a verse like this, we've got to do something with it. I'd far rather take the Bible seriously than literally. Let's do that. And I'll preach on that at a different time. <laughs> Ultimately, the Christian church has most of the time, if not all the time, sided with the oppressor. They've sided with the powerful. They've forsaken the oppressed. Now, I'd be remiss not to mention a few people in the mix. Um, uh, Cotton Mather comes to mind, who in 1751, long before it was popular, uh, advocated for uh, slaves' rights and the rights of, of people of color. But by and large, the church has stood with the oppressor right up until today. I mean, on my social media feed, when our leader called certain countries whatever he called them, 
Christians on my media feed were like, well, he's right. Without taking into account the fact that America went into those countries, destabilized them intentionally, divided them intentionally, and I was like, why can't you keep up? And so part of me gets angry. Part of me wants to throw the baby out with the bathwater. But we have this church, and we have this community, and what do we do with it? Do we believe as a church and as a community, do we believe that, that the oppressed and the marginalized can renew and restore this place, Brooklyn, New York, or even this community? Do we believe it? And I got to tell you, this is epiphany time. How many people know what epiphany is? Epiphany? Oh, no. Epiphany is great. Because what we're celebrating is we're celebrating the light of Jesus Christ. That's what we're celebrating. We're celebrating the fact that God says, how do I come into the world to show them what heaven looks like? And God comes into the world as Jesus Christ. The light has come. And what Jesus does, the way Jesus acts, gives us a glimpse as to what the kingdom of heaven looks like. That's what it is. And so what does the kingdom look like? What does the kingdom of heaven look like? Well, first of all, the kingdom of heaven tells us, Jesus tells us that we are all loved beyond anything we could ever imagine. We are all loved. The powerful are loved regardless of the fact that we have you know, been egregious in some of our sins. The oppressed are loved and completely and utterly loved. We are forgiven. There is good grace for all of us. The ideas of guilt and shame are eradicated from all of us. But then we, we, we thank God for that and then we move, move farther. We move farther because what does Epiphany show us? Well, it shows us what the kingdom of heaven looks like through Jesus. And what does Jesus do? Jesus does not treat people equally. Jesus doesn't treat people equally. Jesus has far more compassion for the Samaritans who are ethnic minorities. And Jesus has far more grace for the Syrophoenician who's an ethnic minority. And Jesus has far more love for the Roman centurion who is the one who is an oppressor. And Jesus has, has deep, deep empathy for those who are mentally unstable. The Bible calls them uh, demon-possessed, right? <coughs> Jesus does not treat people equally. Jesus treats people equitably. Right? Jesus goes to those who have less, the lower socioeconomic, the women whose gender was completely and utterly not acknowledged, and he goes to them, he says, you matter, you are loved, you are a part of my kingdom, and we get to do that too. We get to say, I believe that because of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, that the oppressed and the marginalized can lead us into restoration and renewal. I believe that it doesn't have to be the powerful that leads the way. And I believe that the powerful, the privileged, me, can go ahead and take a seat at the feet of those who have been oppressed and marginalized and learn quite a bit, and unity comes through that. That's where unity comes. That is the good news of Epiphany. That is the good news of the Incarnation. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. So for all of us feeling like guilt and shame, yeah, our history is a mess. And the beauty is, we get to change it. We get to bring the kingdom of heaven here to earth. We get to do that because we are so loved and so forgiven that we are compelled to do it. So the question becomes, how do we do it? Um, there's a woman in our church. Her name is Hannah Johnston, and she is not here this week because she's at a conference. Um, but she goes to our church, and then she's on staff at another church called St. Lydia's. And I was talking to Hannah, and uh, I said, Hannah, talk to me a little bit about um, some of the work you do uh, as a church. And she goes, well we have this thing called show-up group. And I go, what show-up group? And she goes, whenever any policy needs to be enacted, or whenever there's a rally, or whenever there's a protest, or anything like that, we just show up. And I was like, that's it? She goes, yeah, we wear buttons. Their church name on them. And I was like, that's corny. And then, 
And then um, she was like, um, but what we do is we show up, and we don't show up to lead. What we do is we show up because there is a felt need. Maybe it's the need of DACA. Maybe it's the need of Black Lives Matter. Maybe it's the need of women. Maybe it's uh, Pride March in June, one of those things. But what we do is we know that there are people who are oppressed and marginalized who are leading these movements, and we just want to show up to support the oppressed and marginalized as they lead us into something greater, as they renew us. And so I said to Hannah, I said, Hannah, is it okay if we steal that? And she was like, no. And I was like, I'm stealing it anyway. No, that didn't go like that. It didn't go like that. No. She, she was like, please. She was like, we want to get the word out. So what we're doing as a church, how do we start this as a church? We're going to get practical. We're going to show up. We're going to show up. You know what we're going to do? We're going to get corny pins with our church name on them. And whenever there's a, a Black Lives rally, we're going to show up. Whenever there is queer communion, we're going to show up. Whenever there's a rally like there was yesterday, which many women at our church were at, we're going to show up. And we're not going to show up to lead. We're going to show up because we believe the gospel tells us that the oppressed and the marginalized will lead the way into something greater and more powerful and more unifying than we could ever imagine. That is why we show up. And we're going to do it. So if you want to show up, I'm going to make it real simple for you. There's a computer in the back. And there's a form, and the form asks for two things, your name and your email. Sign up for show up, and we'll get you a pin. <laughs> and it'll be amazing. And it'll be amazing. Because we'll enact the words of Isaiah. Because we'll enact the epiphany of Jesus Christ that tells us the kingdom of heaven is here, and this is what it looks like, and you are so loved that you get to be a part of it. So let's sign up, and let's show up. As a church, here's what I promise. I promise as a church we'll let each and every one of you know when these things we can show up to happen. And as a church, I promise you that we will tell you uh, when it's time for us to sit at the feet of those who have been oppressed and marginalized and learn from their, their rallies, learn from the protests, learn from the good work they're doing because it brings unity. I was talking to a group that we're partnering with, the Amer uh, Arab American Family Support Center here in New York City. And I asked them, I said, hey, how can our church help? And they said, well, we had a DACA rally in December, and then we had a rally for refugees in November. And if you could just be there holding our hands in that, literally holding our hands, that's helpful. And I was like, show up group. That's what we're going to do as a church. And we're going to do it because the gospel message is real. Because our history is painful, and it should not be forgotten. And we should develop a culture of grief. I talked about a culture of grief a couple weeks ago. We should develop it, but we shouldn't stay there. We can move to a place where we enact the kingdom of heaven here on earth. And Jesus Christ says, each and every one of you are loved beyond, you can, beyond all you can imagine. I want you to be a part of enacting the kingdom of heaven. And we all say, amen. And we do it. So I want you to pray with me. I want you to pray. Um, this is a prayer from Lisa Sharon Harper. She, she wrote this in a book, and she said, this is the prayer that, that I, I said to the people in the room in Ferguson when we all got together. And this is the prayer that I want to pray with us today. And so what I want us to do is I want us to close our eyes right now. <sighs> Remember Isaiah's statement that it will be oppressed and the brokenhearted and the captives and the imprisoned who will repair the ruined cities and the devastations of many generations. And right now, I just want to thank God for that good news. And right now, I want you to imagine yourself being led by the oppressed in, in Brooklyn, New York, here, in this place. And I want you to give a prayer of thanks that our gospel is one where the oppressed and the marginalized lead the way.
And now I want to acknowledge my own bias, my own blind spots, my own unbelief that the oppressed and the marginalized can lead the way. Maybe you feel similarly. And if you do, I'm going to ask you to pray what I'm going to pray. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And God, we thank you for the incarnation. We thank you for epiphany. We thank you for the light. We thank you that we partner with you to bring heaven to this place. Guide our steps as we enter the movement to repair what is broken here in the U.S. We pray this in your name. Amen.